Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Last week, we celebrated the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the president and vice president of the United States. The first time I visited Washington, D.C. was in 1976. It was dubbed the country's bicentennial, and there were celebrations across the country. I remember first seeing the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and just being in awe. As a six-year-old, I was very proud to show off my newfound knowledge of American history and the United States government I had garnered from watching Schoolhouse Rock. It was new then, y'all. But as we know, the history of this country has been heavily redacted to bolster a myth rooted in just one particular narrative. As indigenous activist and artist Daria Tucana says, this is folklore that is not indigenous. It is folklore that is colonialism. Amongst the many Bernie Mitten memes that showed up on my Facebook feed, many of my indigenous Facebook peeps pointed out the lack of land acknowledgements at the ceremony. We do land acknowledgements as a way to honor the ground on which we stand, as a way of giving thanks, and to name the peoples, cultures, and histories of those who will come after and who have come before us. The Nakachtank are an indigenous Algonquin people who lived in the area of what is now known as Washington, D.C. during the 17th century. Their village was situated within the modern borders of the District of Columbia along the intersection of two major rivers, the Potomac and the Anacostia. The Nakachtank spoke a language with the Algonquin subfamily a language group whose variants are spoken among many tribes living along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. Specifically, the Nakashtanks spoke the Pisakaway dialect as they were closely associated with a larger Pisakaway chieftain of Southern Maryland, whose Tayak, or Grand Chief, ruled over a loose confederacy of area tribes. After the neighboring province of Maryland began encroaching on their territory in pursuit of land for tobacco plantations, the Nakachtank were forcibly removed. They were last recorded in the late 1600s as taking refuge on nearby Theodore Roosevelt Island, located in the Potomac River. Over time, the small population that was left behind after battle and disease was absorbed by Maryland's Pistakaway tribe. In December 2020, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton of D.C., introduced a resolution to recognize that the land of the United States was originally inhabited by Native Americans and to call on state and local governments to encourage formal land acknowledgements before public or ceremonial events. I encourage you to reach out to your congressperson to support this initiative. In this episode, I speak with Firelight Media's Manager of Artist Programs, Chloe Walters-Wallace. In our conversation, we chat about what got her started in the documentary field, her work at the Tribeca Film Institute and the New Orleans Film Society, and Firelight's New Hindsight Project, which is a collaboration with Real South and the Center for Asian American Media. Because she's from and is currently quarantining in Jamaica, this episode's song is Toots and the Maytals' Take Me Home, Country Road, West Jamaica. Here's our conversation which was recorded in January, 2021. So I always like to begin uh, with how we met. And I think it was um, when I traveled to New Orleans and I was a mentor for the inaugural Impact Producers um, Lab. 
for Firelight Media, and y'all were doing that in conjunction with the New Orleans Film Festival. And that was an incredible experience for me, um, just meeting like all the people who participated um, in that, who are not only filmmakers, but also activists. And also um, it was done in conjunction with the Documentary Lab people. So getting to know um, that school of folks. And I think Ashley O'Shea was like part of that, right? Was she part of the Documentary Lab? And now her film Unapologetic is out in the world. So yes. uh, yeah, so um, that's how we met. And at the time, I think you were transitioning from, you were working part-time in New Orleans Film Society and then part-time with Firelight. So you were kind of transitioning, right? I, that was my first um, introduction to the, uh, the cohort at the time in my new role. I hadn't fully transitioned yet. I had literally just accepted the job and then Firelight came to New Orleans and it was really, really great to hang out and meet everyone, but I wasn't fully immersed yet. I, that weekend, I was actually still um, running the Emerging Voices Mentorship Program. With, with the New Orleans Film Society. Okay. Yeah, right, that right. was kind of like the, the lead up to the work I do now with the Documentary Lab, which right. is amazing. So um, how long were you with the New Orleans Film Society? How long did you do that? I was with them for five years. Um, I started, I started, I think in 2013 as an advisory board member. Um, based off of my work with Tribeca Film Institute many years before, um, kind of helped to shape what would, or shared my knowledge to help to shape what would become the Emerging Voices Mentorship Lab. And then the following year, I took over as program director um, based on the work of the incredible Lauren Domino who launched it. And what did you do for Tribeca? That was my first um, job working in artist services. Um, I was right out of college, I believe. Um, all the years are melding together. Yeah. That happens as you get older. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I worked for Tamir Muhammad, who was running the Tribeca All Access program, and I was the program coordinator. So I um, helped set up all the events. Um, I worked with all the vendors, and I also helped to select who was going to participate in All Access. That was my first like experience reading scripts and reading proposals and I fell in love. It was it was one of the best experiences of my career. So you weren't just doing um, documentary, you were doing documentary and working with the, the narrative feature folks as well. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And um, what's your like, how did you get into docs documentary? How do you get into the field? That's um, a really excellent question. I, in college, fell in love with anthropology. And I, um, at the same time, had this fellowship with the Mellon Mays undergraduate um, program, um, where they literally pay uh, students or college students of color to become academics. And so they give you a stipend and they kind of you have to pick a project and work on something and then presented it. Uh, I, did a, I did a project on through anthropology looking at a group of Jamaican women who moved to Spain under the, while um, Spain was still under the dictatorship of Franco. And yeah, they 
went for higher education because in Jamaica, the opportunities were really, really small. This was in the 60s. Um, and they found an immense amount of freedom. Like it was uh, within this dictatorship and space, they were still able to really come fully realize, find their womanhood, find out who they wanted to be and what they wanted to discover with themselves. That's the whole fascinating. Time I was, yeah. <laughs> the whole time I was wishing that I had a camera and that I was actually filming these things. Um, and that led me to documentary. I enrolled in the new school um, immediately after. Wow. So um, I'm going to just kind of go back to that story uh, a bit. Is that something you were like to revisit? Um, you know, getting in contact with those women again and like actually doing a, a film about them? Um, I would do a short about them. They're dear friends of my aunt. So I still okay. have um, access. I would actually love to do a podcast with them because they had such amazing stories, mm -hmm. which I think would be better represented in um, in audio versus visually. Uh, right. They don't have a lot of stuff that they kept from that time. Yeah, um, of, um, archival, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they had such hilarious stories. They were like a set of wild girls, six of them living in the same apartment or same neighborhood, and they all had Spanish boyfriends, and they were living their best lives. That's awesome. Because it's, I, I think it's in the past um, maybe five, five to 10 years that there have been more um, films, uh, documentary films in Spain about kind of revisiting the, the Franco regime. You know, because I, I guess some anniversary was coming up. So I just remember that was in the ether um, out there. So it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see something from the perspective of, or hear something from the perspective of like Jamaican women um, who went there. That's a really great idea, Tony. We should do this. Yes, we should. <laughs> we should. <laughs> but it's so interesting. Um, you meet, uh, mentioned anthropology because I actually my bachelor's degree is in anthropology, and one of my masters is in visual anthropology. And that's the same with me. Um, so I got I graduated from college in the last century, nineteen ninety three. This is like, oh my God, like, how did that happen? You know, <laughs> the time just fly by. Um, and, um, but I didn't get my master's in visual anthropology until like 2016. So it's kind of like the full circle moment um, for, for me. Um, but there are so many anthropologists um, in this field, you know, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, Emily Cohen Ivanez, who is a who's doing fruits of labor with Ashley Solis, and she's um, she her PhD is in anthropology. I didn't know that. Yeah. Emily is a Firelight Fellow. She's a Firelight Fellow. Yeah, and her PhD is in anthropology. Yeah, she's she's started out in academia, and now she's you know doing the, the film thing. Yeah, and yeah. Um, but also um, Elegance Branton, he um, majored in anthropology um, in undergrad before he went to film school. So, um, peer kids. We never had that talk either. I love elegance. <laughs> <laughs> All I want to do is to hang out and yes. talk mess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, elegance and Chester. Yeah, we interviewed them for the the last episode that came out. Yeah, so the, they yeah. came out January 1st. So y'all go back to listen to that one. we are get in the depth <laughs> about peer kids and what they call the uh, documentary industrial complex. So. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Yeah, but actually, that's yes. where that's where I met them in New Orleans. Um, yeah, so they they're they're awesome. 
Um, so, and how long have you been with Firelight at this point now? Um, I started with Firelight in the fall of 2017. So it's been about three years. Oh, so let me ask you this. Like, how did you get to um, New Orleans? Uh, a friend reached out to me. Sorry, there's a bee who has decided <laughs> me. It's the, it's the nature. You're in the nature. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. This bee is obsessed. She's, she's running, oh. y'all, in her beautiful yard in Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you get for doing interviews outside. They want to join the podcast. Yeah, it's like, hey, we want to be on camera, too. <laughs> Kobe doesn't she doesn't come back oh anyway okay it was a, it was a big I'll, b it was big it was huge <laughs> um i'll start over <laughs> um okay so i was sick of living in new york it was freezing cold it was the middle of winter i was still single i um had been trying to date and um I was deciding that I didn't want to live in anywhere that's cold right. anymore. Mm -hmm. I was done. Right. Uh, and pretty much as I had made that decision that week, the universe came together um, and a friend called me to see if I wanted to come down and work with her in New Orleans. And my mother had lived in New Orleans, uh, not lived, my mother had been visiting New Orleans, going to Mardi Gras for years and years and years, since the 90s, going to Jazz Fest. Did, she, um, did, you, ever, did you ever go with her at all on those trips? No. Or? Okay. No, I never, I had never gone before. So when my friend called up, I skedaddled, went straight down to New Orleans to do the interview and fell in love. Um, it's a cross between Jamaica and New York for me, and uh, and as well as its own complete, special, incredible thing. Um, and I went to, I think it was the 100th anniversary of Treme. I went to a fundraiser for, for, the, for elephants. And then I also went to, uh, um, I think it, it wasn't a wedding at the time because gay marriage hadn't been uh, ratified as yet, but they had a celebration at like the city hall because these were city hall workers. And with all of those things happening in one weekend, I You're like, yes. was like, I have to be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to party yes. as much as I like to work. <laughs> And New Orleans is a party city. This it's actually one of my favorite cities um, in in the U.S. I mean, it's just so dynamic. I think that that when I went there, um, that was the first time I had traveled to New Orleans since 1996. So um, yeah, and it was um, it was a phenomenal trip. Um, but there was a parade that was like halfway to St. Patrick's Day parade. Because I think I think in New Orleans you had to have a parade for everything. So every week, <laughs> every week it's like, okay, we're six months from St. Patrick's Day. Let's celebrate. <laughs> I'm like, y'all go ahead. <laughs> so let's get into. Um, I just want to get um, get into some of the work that you did with the New Orleans Film Society and the Emerging Voices Mentorship Lab. And did you also work with the Southern Producers Lab as well? I did the first year. Emerging Voices came from
from the efforts of Clint Bowie, who is an amazing human being and like <laughs> incredible ally and just wonderful person altogether. He's my one of my favorite drinking partners, but he's <laughs> um, good and ready. Uh, and I just consider him one of the dearest friends. Um, they, they at the film society had been matching filmmakers um, of color with industry folks from uh, informally of uh, maybe the year before Emerging Voices started and then decided that they wanted to actually apply for funding. Um, and it started off uh, small. I think it's still small. I'm not sure what it's evolved to right now, but we only had six filmmakers. Um, and we pretty much just wanted to create a space, the kind of the beginning of what became the tagline of geographical dis diversity yes. in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, Regional um, filmmakers and yeah. Yes, uh -huh. exactly. Creating um, access and pipelines to filmmakers that are based outside of the poles of New York and LA. That was, um, a particular effort to really give exposure, um, to get advice for these filmmakers, to find people who could become um, advocates or champions out in the rest of the world, um, and recognize that in the same way that stories told by filmmakers of color about communities of color is important, that stories told by, by filmmakers based um, geographically where they're from rather than flying someone in or having someone coming and do ex extractive storytelling is also incredibly important. Um, and that particularly trickles down to filmmakers of color because as we know, and I saw this when I was reading different applications, once I started with Emerging Voices, um, I started to really go out and become and at least read applications for other funders. And you can see where the breakdown comes, even within the applications for emerging voices where African-American folks didn't have as much of the tools um, or access. Um, and then obviously the ladder kind of goes up based on where you're from and who you are and race and ethnicity and the historical, um, inequities that have been afforded that have and advantages that have been afforded to you based on as we all know yes <laughs> yes yeah. as we're observing this last week in many ways exactly not just in the artist space but just like in american life as we yeah see it. Mm -hmm. yeah Woo. aren't you glad you're in jamaica right now listen to me <laughs> <laughs> Every day I'm like, I'm very worried about my family and friends who are there. Yeah. But every day I'm like, this is the best decision I've made <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. We are living in some times, some times. Um, but I know, and it's only been two weeks. <laughs> I know. Like 2020, 2021 told 2020, like here, hold my beer. You know? <laughs> like, just, let me show you how it's done. done. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, you gotta laugh, you're gonna cry. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So how did your work with, um, with New Orleans Film Society inform um, your work with um, Firelight? The way that the work informed um, my trajectory moving to the documentary lab is really through emerging voices and even through Tribeca Film Institute uh, to learn what filmmakers need to thrive and um, succeed and to get projects made and who those people might be um, that that can help them get there. That was kind of like the the a smaller version to what I've ended up doing with the documentary lab, which has expanded my viewpoint and understanding and access to the industry and who helps funding happen um, immensely. Um, I think that developing relationships with filmmakers myself, I'd already had relationships with filmmakers as friends, but really getting into the nitty gritty, hearing what kind of questions they had, getting into um, who they were interested in connecting with um, and who I thought they should be connecting with. I did a lot of research on the industry about which platforms, who are the folks of color who are creating pathways um, out in the world, um, both filmmakers and industry folks. Um, and that also led to Documentary Lab. I actually met Loida, who was one of our Emerging Voices mentors in New Orleans, which was how, there was, and then I continued to reach out to her to ask for advice because she is an incredible fountain of wisdom yes. mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, about my own work. And that led to working with the documentary. Lab. Okay, great, great. And um, she's just had um, incredible success with her film um, Through the Night. I'm working with Looky Looky Pictures now. So like I'm helping with that impact campaign and it's That's just, awesome. yeah. And it's just, it's just great to like, I think every time that I like live produce a conversation, like I learned something new uh, about the project. And, um, and I think she exemplifies a lot of what I see in the, the filmmakers who I met uh, who are taking part of the the impact producers um lab as well as the documentary producers lab these are filmmakers who are not only committed to storytelling but they bring a really a duty of care to their um protagonist and um i think that's something um that uh, unfortunately isn't um the norm <laughs> in the documentary space um as a yep. as in my as about in my former role yeah i read plenty of um applications um and particularly this summer i had like a lot of um pretty hard conversations with um sometimes like predominantly white filmmakers who mm -hmm. were thinking about their films in the context of capitalizing <laughs> on the moment of black lives matter and um my response to those filmmakers was well you know black and brown people get killed every day by the police why is this different you know um and i, th mm -hmm. and I think the one reason why it was different because we were all at home watching but you know we were all we we're black folks have been always and brown folks have always been watching but mm -hmm. um you know when you, there's a difference when you're talking to a filmmaker who is looking at something as a moment and uh something they could capitalize on versus a filmmaker who is really embedded in the community or who um who 
really holds that can that that members of the community that they're filming with care and dig dignity and um i'm just wondering if like if you could like speak to that speak to that difference you know absolutely i mean in response to filmmakers who all of a sudden want to be documenting um and capitalizing um, what's happened with Black Lives Matter, I'm generally just like, oh, y'all just got here? <laughs> you okay. just arrived? <laughs> this is a thing now? Okay, fantastic. 2008. Um, you know. Yeah. For me, and as myself as a filmmaker, and working with filmmakers of color, not only is it that they approach their subjects and their protagonists and the landscape and where they are situated in the story with care and thought but it is often that they see their family members and community members or their community at large reflected in what they are documenting the experience of the world as a person of color is imbued in us as documentarians as well as all people of color right so to flip that and document it and have the intimate knowledge of what that experience is, I think is incredibly important. There are a million people who want to make films about the Black Indians in New Orleans. Until there was a filmmaker who is a part of the Black Indians um, community and group and is one of the chiefs, documented his own work, it was, you know, the intimacy and the access and the way people speak with you and the, the realm of understanding is paramount to anything else that could be brought. And that's not to say that people can't make decent films um, when not coming from that community. And there are a number of filmmakers of color who also make films about other communities of color, which need to kind of traverse that space as well. But the understanding um, and what I like to call heart space that those communities and the documentarians share is invaluable. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's that, that a place of um, not only being, but from being from that community, but also I, I was having a conversation with Ani, yes, Ani Mercedes yesterday. Um, and her background is in anthropology too. <laughs> All these anthropologists, and um, and, and we were we, we were t kind of talk reflecting on our experiences in school and the whole um, ethnography, and mm. um, how you know anthrop you know um, anthropology was uh, was at one point and maybe still to some degree like an incredibly racist incredibly voyeuristic oh my tradition. god yes they 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 they, they, they wrote the playbook you know exactly yeah. um they set up the foundation of racist stuff yes and yeah exactly and the othering of people um mm -hmm. and and have done a lot to kind of rectify rectify that and i just remember when i was working on my master's um degree um that and particularly when you're learning how to be an ethnographer and just recognizing that you are um um you are an observer 
And because you're coming into the space that you're observing, whether you're like part of that community or not, you are recognizing that you change the you change the dynamics of that space. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and absolutely. And there's this really, I think, what's built into anthropology now is this really keen sense of of um, learning about what one's own biases and presumptions you're bringing to it and like really, really interrogating that when you're going into the space that you, you're observing and, um, and trying to document. I think those of us that go into anthropology, we have kind of like a natural curiosity. So we not only want to learn about other people, but we want to learn about how we see other people and how we see ourselves and how that informs every aspect of that. I often presume, particularly in my past role, when I was like reviewing applications like on a daily basis, that people mm-hmm. who are filmmakers are coming in with that sense of wonder and that sense of of curiosity and self-examination. And that is just not true um and um one thing that um really stands out for me and my experience um in new orleans with working with firelight is just seeing how deliberate and how purposeful and how nurturing that that space was particularly for filmmakers for filmmakers of color you know and Mm -hmm. there were conversations that were had that you can have in um that people probably didn't feel comfortable at the time having in the predominantly white mm-hmm. spaces so um so when you're working with filmmakers of firelight and you're creating that nurturing um that nurturing environment like how do you prep people to like kind of send them out into the world it's a great question um i want to speak to what you said about anthropology because it was in anthropology um, that I found, and specifically taking classes with professors of anthropologists who were ethnographers of color and often going back and documenting and um, doing field work with their own communities where all of these questions were coming up in self-reflection, that that was what led me into documentary. And so I was really surprised that there wasn't that same kind of level of thought process because it had been happening when I was in college. Um, uh, I mean, not much longer, much long ago. (laughs) But um, still, these questions were coming up and none of that has really translated or those two places aren't in conversation with each other, which I find really interesting. how do we prep filmmakers to go out in the world? We, uh, I think of myself and Loida and Monica Navarro, who's recently joined us, and Jimena Amescua, who has been with us for the last few years. That's kind of the core team of the Firelight Documentary Lab or the Firelight Artist Programs team. I like to think of us all in the ways that for some of us, um, our families of color really were the foundation to knowing that there was somewhere safe uh, before you went out into the world. You know, there are conversations that are had usually anecdotal, usually as pieces of advice. Um, For us, 
Uh, and that I think is the foundation of that work that we really think of our filmmakers as part of the Firelight family. And so it is a um, necessity and our charge to take care of them because we're all filmmakers as well. Um, and we're all people of color as well. So whatever happens to that, to them is a reflection of what will and has happened to us in the space. Um, we come from the same background of the filmmakers that we're trying to serve. Uh, and that means a lot. Um, I don't think I realized how much it meant until I joined Firelight. Um, but other than that, we also meet with the filmmakers every month to find out what they need. And sometimes that uh, is shaped in the form of reaching out to funders to uh, connect them, to create an introduction, to be a voice on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that looks like a shoulder to cry on or a really quiet space, even from the bigger part of the documentary lab yes. where something has happened in the documentary industry or something has happened between them and another um, member of the documentary industry mm. that was maybe humiliating, uncomfortable, problematic. Um, and we create a space, whether that is to um, fortify them, to know that they can go back and advocate for themselves Mm. Or if it is something that is, and that's usually the way that works, or if it is something as egregious um, as anything that might possibly happen, then we are able to be a part of that experience and represent them and join the conversation if they so need. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Because those situations don't only happen with industry, they happen within crews, they happen yes. within family, they yes. happen, mm -hmm. you know, we really are um, kind of like a, a, a holding space, a safe space for them. Um, we also have the ability to ask really hard questions of the industry. So our last documentary lab, we really shaped it so that the filmmakers wanted to be able to ask direct questions and hard questions and uncomfortable questions. Um, it was a lab about distribution. And as you know, that has been a really yes, it's been fraught. Yes. in terms of who is being represented there. Um, and, you know, they wanted to ask some tough questions themselves. So what questions were they asking? If, 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 can you share? I can share that there were questions that came up as as simple as what is your methodology for um, selecting people? And then also, how are you working with representation? How are you working directly with filmmakers? Why is there a kind of barrier? Because there are so many barriers between distributors and film festivals. And then there's the sales agents. There's this yes, insane, yes. as Elegance called it, documentary um, industrial complex that really creates many levels of separation. Right. Um, and we were able to interrogate that. You know, why is this necessary? Um, what what is the fear <laughs> you know um, I think it raised questions for people um, that it had never raised before 
you know, why is this their process? Oh, this is what filmmakers are experiencing. Oh, this is what filmmakers of color are experiencing. This is what I am reproducing, whether I realize it or not, that is an enormous problem. Um, And that came up several times over. Because I, I imagine for some people, like they never, they never interrogated the process or like this is, or the answer may be, this is just how we've always done it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah. there'll be an opportunity um, to like stop and think about that. And COVID has, if nothing else has like opened up opportunities for us to stop and think about things. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean... It is because of COVID and because of the horrific death of George Floyd why this was able to happen. You know, it, it, we literally had this lab maybe two weeks after it occurred. Um, and the experience was a world of difference. You know, everybody was ready to question everything and was feeling deep pain. And so um, as horrific as many of the things that have happened this year, uh, my, my viewpoint has been, you know, to really continuously reflect on all that's been given to us as well. You know, oh, so that that, be, that bee came back, y'all. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, started some um, new initiatives. So um, the Impact Producers Lab, you did two cohorts. So now that's a fund. Um, but also, I remember when we saw each other at Naleep, you all were beginning um, the search for, you just begun your um, collaboration with Frontline. Yes, the Frontline Firelight Investigative Fellowship for Filmmakers of Color has been an incredible experience. Frontline um, they are incredible partners. Aloida oversaw the process um, the first year and I assisted. Um, it, uh, we commissioned uh, the filmmaker Juliana Schatz Preston um, to create a short which uh, eventually premiered at Double Exposure um, called Waiting for Tiara, which um, looks at uh, an incredible mother um, named Shayna and her daughter who experiences, who has disabilities in both deafness and as well as mental disabilities, um, which sometimes cause frustrated and violent outbursts. Um, but the response of the state of Connecticut was to instead of figuring out ways to provide at-home support for Tiara, um, was to have her removed from her home and um, by DCS. It's a beautiful short piece. It's still on Frontline's YouTube um, channel. Um, and we also partnered with The Root on the release, looking at Black Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and created a lot of conversation around mothers um, who are experiencing these issues. 
Uh, and so it was an investigative look as well as a, a documentation of uh, Shana and Tiara's experience. Really beautiful, really joyful, um, as well as asking some hard questions of what are we doing to our children and our families? Because Tiara had a family that loved her and wanted to take care of her. And so what does that mean? And what does it mean that Shayna had to then become like an investigator, investigator herself to figure out how to provide her child the best services and experience of life possible? Um, talk to us about the Groundwork Lab. So the Groundwork Regional Lab is my little baby that um, I've been working on since 2017 when I joined Firelight. Um, in Lloyd's experiences of carrying the documentary lab around the country, um, often she would invite local filmmakers of color to participate and realize that there was a disparity of what the experience of regional filmmakers is to filmmakers that are based in New York and LA um, or filmmakers that have a couple of films under their belts already. And together we created the Groundwork Regional Lab, which supports um, early career filmmakers of color based in the South, Midwest and US territories. Um, and we partner with public television stations um, Whenever we land in a city, we partner with the local public television station and a local arts organization. Um, my view is to create a sustainable ecosystem um, for filmmakers of color so that they can live where they work. They don't have to leave and go to New York or LA or even in their actual states, maybe the bigger cities to um, find work and create art. That shouldn't be how it is. Um, people have stories to tell where in their backyards. And it's incredibly important that we support that as an industry rather than supporting extractive storytelling. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's one thing that really um, impressed me about um, New Orleans, when I attended the New Orleans Film Festival that year, was just how many not only Southern stories there were, but also Louisiana stories. And um, I knew that I was seeing a lot of stuff that I wouldn't see at other festivals, you know, and it was amazing quality. And the same thing when I went to, um, I went to the Freak Film Festival in um, Detroit um, in 20, I think that was in, in 2019, before before the world ended. And um, <laughs> so much talent there. You know, I want to so, go to that festival. Yeah. yeah the, oh, Freep. The Detroit Free Press Film Festival. Freep, F-R-E-E-P Film Festival. But there's so many, like, great... Um, great people doing work, um, particularly with filmmakers of color. Um, so, you know, Juanita Anderson, who is a producer on- um, Incredible woman. Dashes. Yes, she's like, she's like documentary royalty, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like that, I met her for the first time and I'd heard of her because like I'm friends with a woman named Michelle Crenshaw, who is a um, cinematographer. And actually she um, sometimes teaches at Wayne State in Detroit. And she had told me about, um, I call her Miss Juanita because growing up, um, my, my grandmother's best friend was Miss Juanita. And I can't say 
Juanita without the miss because you know like I that's like that. I guess the rules you know with the elder thing you know <laughs> absolutely so it's like I it's just just call me Juanita I'm like no I, I can't do that you know can't do it no. <laughs> can't do that um so that was the first time I actually met her in person and she's delightful but also like um the folks at DNA you know documentary narrative mm -hmm. agency like Ill Weaver and um it just really you know because you know living in LA I, I unfortunately kind of had like this myopic view you know LA New York LA New York even though I'm born and raised mm -hmm. in the south you know so I should know better but yeah but now I do <laughs> um and I should say uh -huh. that the very first groundwork we did was in partnership with DNA um and it was and I'm, their set of filmmakers are amazing <laughs> and such fantastic partners. Yes, absolutely. And the thing about the filmmakers who are quote unquote regional filmmakers is they have a, a lot of talent and a lot of drive. It's just the, the resources. They have an immense amount of talent um, and they deserve the opportunities and the resources like anyone else right um they and are innovative and have new ways of seeing their spaces and are you know really grounded as well in community particularly the filmmakers of color just as we were speaking at the beginning you know they're i've seen just completely new ways of viewing the south or viewing the midwest through those filmmakers eyes and it's revolutionary it's empowering um mm -hmm. and i kind of i hate that word because I, I feel like it's been so like misused and misconstrued over the years but for me it's empowering to see people on screen um who not only look like me but like speak like me Mm -hmm. talk like me mm -hmm. um i know this is a documentary related but uh there's a star show called p valley oh, um, i've heard of it oh girl it you need to watch it oh my god it, it is so great. good yeah so it's about it's about this uh black owned strip club and yeah. um and in mississippi but it's like shot in georgia but you know um uh, and like the care is really great storytelling also it's like a woman director woman producer a woman writer so it's like even though it's in the strip club it's like told from the female gaze i know? love that and and like these people talk like the folks who i grew up with you know so um instead of saying like what's your name you say hey, what what's your name is and it's like like this is like the music it's like oh my god you know like these southernisms and you know in eight you know, african-american vernacular english i'm like oh my god it's like i'd like it's like i've kind of like found a part of myself but anyway it's good on, it's on stars it seems like a lot of these regional filmmakers are doing so much work and creating so much great content with a whole lot less access to things so i imagine like what would it be like if they had like full access to like well I will say that from Groundwork, which has been, you know, Firelight, a part of Firelight's long-term investment in um, uplifting uh, regional storytellers, geographic diversity, really putting our money where our mouth is, we've started, I've been leading this new project called the Hindsight Project in partnership with 
Real South and the Center for Asian American Media camp. Um, it we've commissioned six filmmakers um, from across the South to create uh, short documentaries um, about 2020, and it really is having these filmmakers pick um, one aspect of their community or this moment or an issue that they really want to explore. And they're all filmmakers of color um, coming from um, Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, uh, North Carolina. Um, it's been a really, really incredible experience to see what these filmmakers are proposing and bringing these stories to life um, over time. So we've just announced that project out into the world and uh, the, the final pieces will be coming out this summer. They're creating shorts or? Yes. So this is a part of Firelight's digital shorts um, program. We started that work with R100's Days, uh, a collaboration with Firelight and Field of Vision, which um, commissioned a number of filmmakers to look at the first 100 days of Trump's presidency. That's right. Um, and those screened at the New Orleans Film Festival in um, yes. 2017. Yeah, I remember exactly. going to that. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of this uh, project as the bookend to that. You know, we're looking at the year of 2020 and also kind of the last, uh, after the last four years um, mm -hmm. of the experience of, I can't even say his name. But, yeah, yeah, because that's his brand. Uh, yeah, we don't want to yeah, say that, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> uh, and looking at it through uh, the South, which you know, those sorts of stories have been so left out in the library of work, you know, of yeah. Southern mm -hmm. stories, speaking about, speaking to the moment, telling urgent stories um, on the ground, uh, digital shorts, documentaries. Yeah. Well, as a Southerner, I greatly, greatly uh, appreciate that. Um, I'm a proud southerner not in like the other sense but you know but, you know I'm like yeah i'm from georgia so you know you gotta be careful but um but also i mean just particularly like being a southerner and like you know traveling like to other places in the united states that there is still such a, a stigma that the south has you know in regards mm -hmm. to like the history of racism mm -hmm. and things like that and um like it was like hyper racist in the south i'm like no we just had the signs you know in the mm -hmm. north and the midwest you had to guess where you could go you know <laughs> you know um so i mean this whole country has like has a, a history of of racism but i think because of it was so like quote unquote obvious in the south the south is like looked down on by folks in the north as if like nothing ever happened in the north and like there was plenty Absolutely. happening yeah in the north and um like I still have my Southern accent and it definitely comes out when I'm tired and it definitely comes out when I've had a few drinks. Um, but when, when people hear that, they're like, oh my God, you're from the South. And I'm like, well, yeah. And um, and there's this sometimes this presumption of like ignorance. I'm like, where do y'all get that? It's just accent, like, like you have an accent too. You know? Yeah. You know? I mean, I think so there's two things. I 
when I moved to the South, I found so many of the experiences I had um, when I moved to the U.S. from Jamaica. I got mm -hmm. a scholarship to boarding school in Boston, and there were a lot of questions. What school did you go to? I went to Milton Academy. And the questions, the exoticization, the, the assumptions that came with that. And I think that, and I've been having this conversation a lot with, um, I've joined a group as a representative of Firelight called the Independent Media Arts South, which was organized by Sundance and the NEA. And we're having a lot of questions about, uh, or conversations about prejudice and how that prejudice, like historical prejudice from the North and South divide is still being reflected uh, in the documentary industry, in the film industry at large, of understanding who's intelligent and capable and deserves resources, all of those things. I should also say that one of the films for the Hindsight Project is set in Puerto Rico, um, and we've made a specifically specific amount of investment and work and working with Puerto Rican documentary filmmakers through the excellent group named ADOC PR. Um, but again, they're also experiencing that sort of prejudice, right? Even though Puerto Rico is a part of the US, technically, um, they are completely left out of the conversations of the documentary. It's only since Hurricane Maria have things right. really, they're mm -hmm. like, all oh, right, that island but it's there we are <laughs> messing over you know yeah it's been messing over yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and there's some incredible work coming out of that place so what are some of the things that are coming out in your um conversations with that group about how to um combat the this um prejudice it's a partnership between southern filmmakers and southern arts organizations that are kind of having these conversations. So people are really sharing the experiences that they're having um, and trying to you know, push back, whether that means creating a best practices document um, of ways that Southern artists want to be treated and seen and given resources, um, ways they want to be compensated, um, looking at, gathering data for what is happening in the South and what's not. A lot of large um, organizations that have a wider membership will come, do focus groups, collect data, and then won't necessarily share that back, you know, which is an immense problem. Um, it can come in the form of showcasing the talent that we know exists. Um, and that looks like um, whether a website or a newsletter or a way for people to access information easily that is held by the South, you know, that isn't dictated to us. So there's local arts like film organizations or film festivals or filmmakers all coming together to discuss this question of what do we want to do and how do we want to be treated um, in the space? You know, how do we show up? How can we show up better <laughs> as well? And, you know, there is strength in numbers too. Well, yeah, I want to go back to, you mentioned the, um, the, par the part about 
um, organizations coming in and collecting data and not necessarily um, sharing that that data. Um, and uh, I kind of call that the the study trap, um, you know, because I, I and it's not just in the documentary space, mm -mm. but um, you know, there are all these like people do studies to like really study these obvious things. I call it kind of the, the water is wet, you know. Um, <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, we know the water is wet. What are you gonna do? Yeah. You know, what are you gonna yeah. do? Um, so, you know, um, particularly when it comes to folks of color in um, the documentary industry, there, there, we know that there's there's issues around gatekeeping and lack of access and extractive storytelling. Mm. And um, so how, and we know these things, we know these things are happening. There's, there have been study after study and there, I think there are people doing more studies about that. How do we move from the study, studying of to like the action? I think there needs to stop being multiple studies <laughs> being funded about the South. Like people need to share the data that they're collecting between themselves. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm a really good Virgo. So I believe in lists, <laughs> you know, like I believe in once you've gathered all that information, what are the three concrete things that you're going to work towards? you know right. or this one mm -hmm. concrete thing it could be a really small thing um that you that if you make this change it will create a ripple effect to create more changes there's a lot of really excellent funding going into filmmaker collectives versus organizations these days which i think is amazing and a trend that needs to continue um but I think that there needs to be uh, movement <laughs> and less conversation at this point. You know, or if we're having conversation, it has to be really hashing out again, maybe what is the one thing we do this for the, the next five years um, and right. see where that ends up. Um, and obviously that's how funders work in general, but right mm -hmm. um the changes can be small sometimes we don't see them but yeah you know, but it's just like making an actual move exactly, exactly. yeah making an actual move yeah yeah because I, mean, I can't i can't um yeah i began to grew grew to um have disdain for um phrases like oh well thank you for bringing that up or <laughs> you know or let's continue the conversation later. I'm like, okay, I'm like that means nothing. You know, <laughs> like, 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 okay, what are we going to do? Like, let's pick one thing, yeah. one little thing, and just like do it. Yeah, you know, absolutely, just one little thread. You know, yeah. And you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. listening is in a lot of listening happening, but. And also employing the people that you're listening to to help get it done is the way I see it. So that they can see the way that incremental movement is working. Because I also think that that's another issue, that there's this opacity um, to action um, that might be just smaller changes happening over time versus one big, enormous change that's announced. And, and 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 I think when you're um, talking about systemic issues um, in the industry, you really do have to take um, 
not that you have to be slow in how how and how the changes come about, but you do have to really be kind of strategic um, and make these make small make small moves um, in order to facilitate eventually bigger changes. I mean, the thing is just move. Yeah, you know, yeah, just because there's a who's I think it was two live crew. Are <laughs> you really taking it? Uh, uh, just kind of the topic of holding um, gatekeepers uh, accountable mm -hmm. um, when it comes to um, and kind of going back to the what we talked about earlier in regards to extractive storytelling and like one of the challenges I was dealing with constantly is um, uh, really asking questions of of um filmmakers who weren't dealing in extractive storytelling to like asking questions and having conversations with them to correct those things and then um unfortunately the powers that be just kind of giving them a pass um so and um <clears throat> i you know i was in my former role as you know managing a fiscal sponsorship program i i had i saw myself as a gatekeeper it was a little gate you know <laughs> But um, but I saw I saw it as a gate nonetheless, and like my my um, like I felt a duty to um, make sure folks of color who I mean folks not just people of color but folks who didn't have access or didn't know because sometimes when you're entering the film world you don't know what you don't know. But a lot of those people are really eager and enthusiastic, and when you have conversations with them, like correct things in the proposals, and you can see them growing and changing. So giving them the quote unquote inside knowledge, and not just folks of color, but also like folks who are like uh, like middle and middle class white folks who are trying to tell stories about you know their communities, because um, a lot of them don't have access to the funding and the acts um, access to the funding and things like that. But um, unfortunately, um, when it comes to some of like the larger um, some of these larger and well known filmmakers, like well more moneyed filmmakers. Um, people were just kind of were given a pass because because um, of who they were, and um, that was like very that was incredibly frustrating for me because um, not that I was expecting to kind of change hearts and minds, but I was like there's definitely um, an effort to discourage me from like asking the questions, you know, um, and so. And it's something that's common within the industry. And I know like earlier last summer, um, after um, George Floyd was murdered, a lot of artist organizations were putting out, like folks of color at art, artists, like predominantly white artist organizations were putting out statements and, um, and, and so the statements and letters, like specific things that they were demanding in regards to changes, like to board and staffing and, you know, for example, like making salaries transparent to close that, that equity gap, um, because um, an organization after organization, there were stories being told where, you know, a, a, a white counterpart was getting paid tremendously more than like the person of color and they had like less responsibility. Um, so, I mean, what, do you see are some ways that um, we can like move toward like holding these these like gatekeepers ac accountable? So the people who are essentially essentially responsible for letting people 
letting people, giving people access, how can we move toward a more industry-wide view of holding those folks accountable? Um, because that's, to me, where there seems to be like a, a bottleneck and a, and a bit of a, a really a disconnect. You know, I work in a space where we hold everybody accountable. I'm incredibly grateful to be with Firelight and being able to really push those conversations. I think that there needs to be support in more organizations like Firelight so that more organizations that are led by people of color um, feel that they have the, in Jamaica we say, backative, <laughs> which means that they have the support to really ask those hard questions um, of folks because we're all being brought into the private industry conversations we're all being brought onto panels we're all being brought into these spaces where they have where we have the opportunity to push back and we need to know that it's a safe space in order to do so so not only supporting those organizations so that people can develop those um, muscles to ask and interrogate those questions I think there needs to be more investment in, um, I hate the word gatekeepers, because that to me says of something being let kept out versus um, the community. Yeah, exactly. The embrace is what I would want to call that. Um, uh, I think that there needs to be more investment in industry that is not just in New York and LA, more development programs for those folks. So not only are you getting in, um, perspectives from filmmakers of color, but perspectives from, film, from industry all over the country, which should reflect all of the experiences and understanding that we have. Um, I also think that. Um, you know, a lot of those conversations happen in private spaces. Um, and that's where it gets tricky. Um, being able to have that interpersonal pushback and space for the others, and I mean non-people of color, um, to understand why it's being interrogated and why it's maybe not okay to create a pass and why it's important that not just because this person is who they are, that giving that spot to that person does creates less spots for the people who are bringing new narratives and new um, ways of seeing and new visual storytelling, new style. You know, every time that happens, someone else doesn't get that chance. Um, and so to keep that on top of mind, and we really, um, even in our space at Firelight, you know, it's a difficult, um, but beautifully difficult interrogation process that we also put ourselves through. Who are we not supporting um, in the space of filmmakers of color? We only have 12 spots. How do we make this count? How do we make sure that filmmakers who are, who are already getting a ton of support, who all have already um, been in other labs, um, maybe we work with them in a different way, support them, but actual support of getting that slot into the documentary lab, who are we pushing furthest and creating more impact?
as the hindsight is a reflection of um, the investment that both Real South, CAM and Firelight have been making in the South and US territories for quite some time. Um, we, and it's a reflection of the ecosystem that we want to create that I talked about before. We are not only supporting filmmakers and commissioning their work, we're also pairing them with mentors who are filmmakers of color working out in the world um, to provide kind of cinematic understanding, how to enter into structuring their project. Um, People like Bing Lu, people like Daphne McWilliams, um, Ilan Bogorin um, are mentoring our filmmakers, which is really exciting. But we're also partnering with public television stations. Um, each filmmaker based in the state um, works with a public television station, uh, the local one in their backyard. And so they're also serving as mentors of understanding how to navigate the system and being introduced to new talent that they can bring on themselves. Um, it's really exciting and it's a really new way of thinking about, not a new way, it's the way that distribution should be thought of for public television. Um, but we're really excited to uh, be the host and facilitator of that. Um, I'm hoping that more and more and more stories and more folks kind of take that work on um, themselves, really looking at local stories as important and necessary to um, our, our, our entire existence in this world. Again, it should reflect the understanding um, and viewpoints of the entire country. Chloe, in her work at Tribeca, the New Orleans Film Society, and now at Firelight Media, as a testament to what can happen when filmmakers are not just heard, but actions are taken to actually implement what they need. Filmmakers who are BIPOCs or part of other marginalized groups need our own spaces, whether it be with Firelight Media, CAM, ADOCS, the Black Documentary Collective, Neotero, Fordocs, or Bad West. These are the spaces where we can find mentors and the places where we can be celebrated, supported, held, and seen. Make a point to find your doc family. And Chloe makes another valid point. We don't need another study. We know water is wet. Organizations need to begin to share their data. And as Chloe suggests, just pick two to three concrete initiatives that you can actually implement. As Nike says, just do it. And as Two Live Crew says, move something. Don't be a dead, apathetic, moribund, do nothing, because that's just tired. And art, like life, is meant to flow. Thank you so much for listening today. For February, we'll be releasing our collaborative episodes with Doc Leipzig, which are part of our What's Up with Docs at initiative. And Ronell and I will be taking a break in March to prep for the new season. But no worries, March is Women's History Month. So we'll encourage you to revisit some of our episodes featuring some of our lady guests. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. And visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. 
And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories.